Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the rainy Pacific Northwest to District 12 to a galaxy far, far away, it's Election Shock Therapy Special Edition. All right. <laughs> love it. Um, you might love it. We might not. We're about to find out. Hey, guys. <laughs> um, in our Distributed Ops Edition, uh, this is Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me today are... Andy Bramson. Matt Kukum. And Sam Alberry. And we're taking a break from our usual discussion of contemporary politics and how we can understand them better through the tools of political science to looking at how we can better understand uh, major pop culture through the lens of political <laughs> science. I'm not sure all of this counts as major pop culture, but go ahead. I think, um, I think it's major pop culture. We may not like it as a major illustration of political science. This whole game got started a few uh, few years ago when we dove into the world of Harry Potter and the, po- the, pl- the politics in Harry Potter. We also looked at politics in the world of Star Wars and we have sort of uh, three more small chunks to chew on uh, in this podcast. We're going to turn to Andy Bramson for two uh, corpuses of um, uh, uh, mythology, mythos, backstory. What's that? Something, I don't know. (laughs) Let's just go ahead and say it. I've been trying to say sparkly vampires. We're going to turn to Professor Bramson to talk about sparkly vampires. And uh, we're going to talk about Twilight. We're going to talk about the Hunger Games. So a little bit of apocalyptic literature there. And then uh, we have an update on Star Wars with the conclusion of the Skywalker saga, at least as of right now, the conclusion of the Skywalker saga. So <laughs> as per usual, we have our standard questions we're going to ask. This is not a chance to, we're not film critics. This is not a chance for us to judge the overall quality of these works, either as books or as movies, but it is a chance for us to see what kind of politics are lurking in these films or in these books. Are there underlying political assumptions that these uh, works are making? Do they teach us something about the political world that we've experienced? Are they allegories or metaphors for anything that we experience in the real world? So if you like Hunger Games, Twilight, or Star Wars, uh, go ahead and, and tune in. Uh, hopefully you get a little something political out of this podcast as well. We rolled the dice, and uh, guess what came up first? That's right, Edward Cullen. It's time Ooh. for some vampires. All Professor Bramson. Right. <laughs> It's Twilight, man. It's the United States, at least some version of the United States, where there are ageless, um, undead people who are also apparently very sexy. Um, so <laughs> tell me, uh, question one, what is the political system of the Twilight universe? Well, first of all, it's not just the United States. It's it's international, right? And so they have what? an international political system. They have a Transylvania, perhaps? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> They actually did. Um, the previous rulers were from Romania, which apparently is a roughly Transylvania uh, okay, yep. in this world. But now it's centered in Italy, appropriately enough, um, wow. maybe. Um, and basically, kind of, maybe like a Medici thing. Or what are we going yeah, for here? Yeah, more or less. Okay. I mean, it, it's really government by the mob, um, and the mob mm. in this case is a group called the Volturi. 
Um, they have one basic rule, which is that vampires anywhere in the world are not allowed to expose the vampire world to non-vampires. And so we regular folks um, cannot know that these beings who are, you know, again, very sparkly, want to suck our blood, are exist, right? Um, and so, so this, this is a parallel to the Harry Potter world and, and wizards can't talk about is. themselves. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it is, yeah. except that it's a much less well-developed system. Um, it's basically, you know, the mob does nothing unless you threaten exposure and then they kill you. Um, oh, so it's Code of Omerta. Yeah, well, that's outside my realm of knowledge, but sure. Okay. Um, so <laughs> if, you, if you don't, you know, if, if you do anything that might expose um, their world, then they eliminate you. And that's basically the bottom line. Okay. It's not much more complex than that. Um, they, it's <laughs> yeah. like overwhelming shock and awe. They have, you know, they've accumulated like a kind of group of vampires that basically is powerful enough to take down any other, any other group until the very okay. end of the series when they're not quite powerful enough. Okay. So it's generally sort of uh, silence um, info enforced by force, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. So that is like Code of Oberta. Um but Sam says, first world vampires, nobody talks about the vampires, which makes some sense. If you think, if, yep. if, if, if your means of sustenance is the rest of the human race, a certain amount of, let's say, discretion is probably advised. Yep. Right? You don't want yep. to spook the, spook the cattle, as it were. Yep. Okay. So in that case, what sorts of uh, political theories or concepts pop out to you, as, especially as a comparativist, but perhaps more generally speaking as a political scientist, when you read the Twilight books? So one one thing that stood out to me is, I mean, this is a good example in a way of tyrannical power on the one hand, but the limits of being able to govern just by tyrannical power, if that's all you're using, if you don't actually create structures, right? So the Volturi have the, the force to take care of just about anything, or at least most of the time, but um, they don't really govern, right? They're not actually kind of providing any services. They're not actually doing anything with the population. It's just like, if you cross this line, we will find you and we will kill you, right? Um, and so it actually made me think of um, a critique that Jeff Herbst, who's an Africanist, gives of Crawford Young's take on colonial Africa. So Crawford Young says um, that colonial Africa, you know, sort of fundamentally transformed the landscape because it had such massive force. And Herbst says of this, he says, pervasive violence and control should not be confused. Um, and so his point is, Colonialism was pervasively violent, that is true, but they also didn't like extend their control very well, right? They a lot kind of escaped their notice because they didn't care about it. They didn't bother to set up structures to govern. Um, and I think in that, in a sense, the Volturi are a good example of that. So would you say maybe that um, this fictional world, the books and or the movies do a good job sort of portraying the limits of the use of just brute force um, in trying to control the masses? Yes, yes. And there's no reason to cooperate except for that brute force. Right. Um, so you have no loyalties other than that, basically. So in that sense, would you say that this world, kind of moving to our, our next question that we like to ask, would yes. you say that this world um, gets this particular thing right about politics? Or yes. does it get some other fundamental aspect wrong? Yeah, I mean, let's go and talk about that. I think it, it does get that right. Um, the kind of advantages and limits of force. Um, I think it, it highlights the problem of how power corrupts. Um, the Volturi are a very corrupt group. I mean, I think the mob, again, is the, the right analogy there. So one thing, for example, they, they do, um, or they've done at different points in history, is they'll basically go in take out opponents, right? Um, all for the sake of kind of co-opting some vampire they really want who has particular skill sets. Because, of course, all the vampires have these different unique skill sets, right? Um, and... 
they'll kind of basically kill tax all law other people <laughs> and then before that one to come join them. Um, it's really strange. Um, <laughs> I think the other thing I would just say is like the limit of this, what it gets wrong uh, in terms of politics is um, that this isn't a real governance system. I mean, mm -hmm. um, Myers vampires in this, this series are bizarrely non-social. Um, and it's bizarre because we know that humans generally are social. Um, and of course, all the vampires used to be human, right? And so it's like somehow turning into a vampire burns the socio sociability out of most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. So we um, couldn't use Rousseau to explain vampires, basically. Um, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> but you mentioned that they, they function like the mob, and you've described the force part of the mob, but what allows the mob to stay in power besides the use of force is the fact that it provides public goods. It does co-opt a certain percentage of the population yep. into uh, essentially acquiescence or quiescence at, at best. So is there a provision of public goods the Volteria supply? Do they give something back to either the vampire community or some portion of the human community uh, to, to create a constituency for themselves? So first of all, they, they've built a much larger community than anyone else in the, the vampire world. Um, and for those people do, or those vampires do get um, some goods provision. Um, and then the other good they do provide is a kind of protection. And so kind of like the mob too, where they say, you know, like, look, if you, if you give us the, you know, provide us a certain amount of payment payoff, right. We'll keep any other bad guys from harming you. Right. Um, they're providing a kind of protection because they're basically saying, you know, we'll keep anyone from exposing our world so the rest of you can get about your normal vampire business of sucking people's blood, right? Um, and um, that's the protection we're providing for you. And in return, you should cooperate with our, our rule and not challenge our rule. Okay. That's that's about as far as it goes with goods provision. Andy, I, I literally know approximately a paragraph's worth of information about the Twilight world. I've somehow managed to avoid knowledge. I'm I know, sorry, there's, I know, so much I know there's a woman named Bella. I know she's <laughs> torn between a vampire named Edward and a werewolf named Jacob. And so far, you have not said anything about werewolves yet. So where do they fit in the political structure of this world? Are there other mythical beasts that I should be aware of? They don't. They have they basically their own little they have their own little sub society going on over there. Um, also, they're national separatists. Uh, yeah, they're, <laughs> separate, they're in their own thing. I mean, they, they don't cooperate with each other for the most part. Although okay. weirdly, at the end of the books, they do kind of because of the connection through Bella. Um, but mm. no, they're they're off to the side. They're just almost a, they're basically a separate society. Okay, so is this a marriage of two kingdoms through Bella? Eh, yeah, kind of. Um, you know, it's, 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 okay. it's a rough association between a very particular corner of the the vampires and these werewolves. Who turn out, it turns out, are not werewolves, but that's let's not go down that path. So they're shapeshifters, unicorns. Okay, no, they they think they're werewolves, but it turns out they're actually shapeshifters or something like that. So it's been okay. a while since I've read this, but yes, that's the. All right, so it sounds like there might be some really bad identity politics in here too. Oh, so much. Yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> Other uh, to, to jump off of Matt's question, other things that the Twilight world gets right or wrong about politics? No, nope, I think that's about all I want to say. <laughs> okay, so there's not. It's really not very much about politics. It's mostly in the second book, no. and then a little at the end. I mean, so it's very. It's. I think the mob thing is interesting, but that's about as far as it really goes. It doesn't develop it well. 
All right, Professor Bramson, um, we end up grading a lot of our students pass fail this last semester because of the coronavirus. So uh, typically we give these fictional worlds a, a letter grade. I'm gonna allow you to give them a letter grade or to opt for a simple pass fail. We will use the pass fail in situations where there is not enough politics to really evaluate a letter grade, but we feel like they've either basically got it right or basically they're insufficient in their political treatment. So all things considered, A through F plus an S or U, uh, what grade are you gonna give the Twilight World? You know, it's basically a C, um, so it's a oh, pass. I mean, okay. it's got good insights on power, on the kind of what power does to corrupt, about the deep desires for power. There's another couple of vampires who are trying to get back into power who had lost power like 1,500 years ago or something. Um, but it's problematic. Oh, so it's political grievance. Excellent. What's that? There's political grievance, so Paul Dio yeah. would be happy. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, there is grievance. Um, they're not very powerful but they anymore, but they're, they're trying. Um, yeah. I think it's problematic how little it accounts for the social. So, yeah, you know, See, as far as it goes, it has some insights on power, and that's about as far as it goes. Okay. okay. Uh, we do need to give a couple of awards out. We traditionally oh, yeah. uh, give awards in our fictional worlds. So, um, again, we're, we're looking to you as the expert in this, uh, oh, yeah. in, in Twilight. Uh, we always give the Machiavelli Award to the shrewdest politician in this fictional universe. Who is the shrewdest politician in Twilight? Oh, that's easy. I mean, it's Arrow. Um, he's the head of the Volturi. Um, he's charismatic. He's persuasive. Um, he can read your mind as long as he can touch you. Um, and okay. and he's, turned his, he's focused his attentions on accumulating power over the years. So um, he's pretty effective and he knows, he knows kind of when he can't push it any further. Um, and so at a very key moment, he backs off from a confrontation because he realizes he's not sure he'll win. Oh, guys. Uh, somewhat conservative for his base. Uh, old charming can read your mind if he touches you is joe biden and voltaire <laughs> does that explain all the shoulder rubs is he reading um, minds maybe wow i love that <laughs> all right before we, get deep, before we get too deep into joe biden's a vampire um yeah. let's give out the uh achebe award uh <laughs> the achebe award is um a little bit more complicated, basically the premise is how does this world fall apart? So if we took this fictional world, instead of focusing on Bella and Edward and, and sort of the main characters, it focuses on the political world, Where, how might this political uh, universe spin out if we sort of ran, just studied the politics of the Twilight world? And another, I had another book about that. Where might it be headed off to? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it falls apart um, if if the, the kind of tyrannical power can no longer um, enforce its will. And that actually basically mm -hmm. happens at the end of the series, um, spoiler alert, right? Um, where they can't, they cannot do whatever they want. This is pitched as a good thing um, because they've abused their power in a lot of ways, but it does raise some really interesting political questions where you say, okay, so now what, right? Um, now mm -hmm. you have this group of vampires who are trying to oppose this power, but they don't really want the power themselves. Um, so they kind of leave the Volturi there, but they're kind of, um, crippled a little bit and you know th this is presented as kind of a happy ending um, and the political scientist in me says hmm um, this has got to go somewhere and several of the places it could go are not so good um, so fra fractionalization for sure yep, yep. <laughs> so but it's um, and so it's hard to see like especially given that they're not very social how this leads to anything other than another kind of tyrannical power um, mm -hmm. enforcing a similar rule um, but yep that's how the system falls apart is when the, the powerful don't have enough power to actually enforce their will.
The center can't hold. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, last award, and I'm happy to let you punt on this one if you feel like it's necessary, but um, we've always given out the Leslie Nope Award uh, for uh, the figure inside this fiction universe which who practices politics to the greatest degree of hope and optimism. It's pretty much Carlisle, I think, um, who's the kind of head of the family that Edward's part of. Um, he can see some good in almost everybody. He'll, he's willing to work with almost everybody. He even has nice things to say about the Volturi, despite their abuses. Um, so it's probably Carlisle. He's not very political, but um, when he does engage in, in the vampire politics, he's pretty cheery. Or as cheery as, <laughs> as vampires get, anyway. <laughs> so does that mean that to be involved in politics in such a dreary system that you can't actually be that involved in politics and be optimistic at the same time. I, I wouldn't really yeah, generally describe the vampires as a kind of cheery, optimistic group. Yeah. I mean, people who are involved in politics do these kind of, it's all about the power. They're power hungry. I mean, yeah, they want to drink blood periodically too, but um, yeah, it's just not clear. Like, what do you, what do you do with your life all the time? I mean, like, yeah, you're living forever, but to, <laughs> to what end, right? Um, it seems very, very dreary what the Volturi do. Um, so power has become its sort of own end for them. Um, so yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem like those they those people can or those vampires can be very um, very happy. Although Arrow has a kind of I guess cheeriness in his power hungriness. Mm. I've always thought that whenever uh, in in large sort of literary epics, and I'll use the word literary loosely here, but in, in sort of these large epics, whenever you have a character that lives for a really long period of time, like whether it's Tolkien's elves um, right. or vampires, other sorts of things, they the way that authors often describe that is sort of the, almost this lassitude, right? Rather than sort of being consumed with energy to, to try to create and do and achieve things in a relatively short lifespan, you kind of get bored and lazy. Uh, yeah. or at least you pursue things with very slowly and that um, we're just being jaded. Right. Right. Yep. It, it, it raises questions for how politics might be practiced differently in a world in which um, a four year cycle is functionally meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, nobody's going to die. Right. I mean, like you don't, you know, you're not, you're not mortals. So yeah. it's not like, well, we'll wait for, you know, arrow to die. He's not going to die. You could kill him, but he's not going to die. Well, let's turn to a world where mortality is much more highly accentuated. Um, I, if I could whistle, I would do the whistle right now. I can't whistle, but Something there like we that. go. <laughs> let's talk about the Hunger Games. Um, so I have uh, I know a little bit more about the Hunger Games than I know about Twilight. I right. read the first book and seen the first two movies, I think, uh, of the Hunger Games trilogy. So I know a little bit about this world, but Andy, you are still the expert. You've seen the films, you've watched the you've, uh, you've read the books. Yes. Uh, tell us about, man, well, first of all, you got to connect this because there are some real world antecedents, sort of the, the Hunger Games is one vision of our distant future. So tell us, yes. how do we get from the world as it is today to the world of Pan Am? Well, they're, they're kind of vague about that. I mean, basically it sounds like you've, kind of um, destroy the country. Um, and so I, I almost get the impression that there's like a almost environmental collapse. I mean, the population's collapsed, right? And there's only certain areas that remain viable. Um, and so it's, it's set in the- Are we kind of Jared Diamond here? Is that the sort of thing we're looking at? 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, we're it's we're it exists in the remnants of the United States, right? In the okay. in the territory that is the United States, but it's only really drawing on um, a few very particular parts of it, right? And so the rest of it seems to be pretty much just an uninhabited wasteland. Although a lot of it's kind of forested, so I, it's just not quite clear kind of why that that collapse has happened. I should also just add as a caveat here at the beginning, I just realized last night um, that there is a new Hunger Games book out called The Ballad of mm -hmm. Songbirds and Snakes. I have not read this book, obviously. Okay. Um, so this is just based on the original trilogy, not that. So I don't have any new information there. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. That sounds, yeah, like, it, someone, sounds like somebody's trying to capitalize on the Song of Fire and Ice. I'm just saying, like there's... Cash right, yeah. right. It's basically a prequel. I did look it up and it's a prequel that covers okay. President Snow and like when he was a young man. Okay. So it's going. It's like about sixty-five years before the original, the the original or um, trilogy, rather. So this is the Orson Scott Card approach. Like I, I had this great story about all these kids. Now I'm gonna go back and tell you how they all spun out their lives in different directions. Yep. Yep. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, let's, let's 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 reboot the questions. Dive in. This is a lot meatier question. What is the political system of the Hunger Games? Well, it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, you have a sort of federal structure um, the way the United States does, right? You have these 12 districts mm -hmm. and then the capital, um, which sounds a little bit like how, how you know we're set up. But the difference is the, the center is completely dominant. Everything is dominated by the capital. They dictate what happens. And the districts, you know, basically um, provide for the capital. So the capital... Um, has no resources of its own, but it lives at this really luxurious level. And most of the districts live at a much more kind of, you know, hand to mouth, very basic uh, level. So the gap between the kind of haves and have nots, have nots is really, really wide. Um, there are some districts that do better than others. So one and two, for example, um, seem to be more favored. But um, in general, it's, it's a very, you know, kind of you know, centrally run um, system. It's not entirely clear how they choose their leaders. President Snow has been in for a long time. Um, and so that, that kind of the mechanism of that is, is not, not clear. Does this sound like any countries in the real world today, Andy? Um, <laughs> good question. Yeah. I think there are, it, it, it reminds me a little bit in a way of China. I mean, you have actually subnational governments, um, that, you know, are there, they exist, that they even maybe have some say in who gets chosen there, but they don't actually have meaningful power. Um, they're only, they only do what the center allows them to do. I would say it's, I, I would agree with you. I, when I read this and I think about this, it sounds, if you, it feels like China with a heavy dose of the Stalinistic uh, Soviet Union yep. uh, with different sort of like sort of a um, command economy but yep. an economy really uh, sort of heavy-handedly differentiated by the central government. Yeah. Of course, there's the added level of sort of almost North Korean corruption on top, with sort of right. this this narrow cabal of people affiliated with the with the regime getting very wealthy, sort of a kleptocracy almost, uh, and so uh, different parts of the economy being sort of divvied out to do different kinds of things. Right. 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 And the um, Soviet Union is probably the better analogy, actually, with the big difference being in the Soviet Union, Russia was very large and had a lot of resources of its own. In um, Panem, the capital is not that large and doesn't have really any resources of its own and yet somehow still manages to maintain control, um, which is kind of odd. I feel like there's a, de a decent explanation there, and you alluded to it. Uh, Panem plays favorites, and yeah. districts one and two are, uh, do reasonably, decently well. 
uh, yep. in this system. Yep. And that's also where the central government draws its military forces from. Yep. And so you get the um, preponderance of force. You get a certain uh, uh, willing coalition of people buying in, and then you're able to, to leverage that to play the other districts off against each other. One right. of the ways they play them off against each other is is sort of rhetorical uh, through the Hunger Games itself. Yep. So that that works for me. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, are there other political theories or concepts that pop up in the Hunger Games that you think are particularly apt from the political science world? Well, I think, I mean, um, it, it does kind of illustrate how oppressive governments can use and co-opt kind of locals. Um, and that kind of connects to the point you were just making. I mean, like that you're you're going to give certain locals benefits, right? Um, and they're going to cooperate with you and then they help you keep, um, you know, keep the, the that local population in line. And so again, I mean, this reminds me a little of colonialism, which I talk about a lot in African politics, right? Where you find certain um, local people who you then use to kind of indirectly govern, and so that a lot of it's coming through through them. The other thing I think this this illustrates well is kind of when does revolution happen, right? Because of course, revolution does happen in the Hunger Games. Rebellion does happen, and it's you know you can you can abuse a population quite a lot but there is a breaking point when you get too abusive too greedy you overextend your power and then they they just sort of don't care anymore and they rebel and they're willing to die right because it's just our life is so miserable um and that's that's kind of when revolution happens so this made me think a little bit of kind of you know the arab spring right i mean tunisia and egypt have these really oppressive governments for a really long time but at some point people say it's just too much. I'm, we're willing to go to the streets, and if they mow us down with guns, they mow us down with guns, right? Um, we're just going to do it anyway. Um, and so, you know, there, there is that kind of that breaking point. It's not easy to assess necessarily when does that breaking point happen, yeah. um, but we know it's there. It reminds me a little bit of, um, and I, I have to do this because I teach this, of a Machiavelli, what he says, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he says, it's better to be feared than to be loved. If you can do both, great. Um, but if you can't, you know, buy them off, at least make sure they fear you. But don't go so far as to make them hate you. Because right. if they hate you, your security basically implodes. Um, yep. And the surest security is making sure that people fear you enough, but don't have the sort of passionate hatred of you. Um, and yep. that's kind of what ultimately happened, um, especially with what happened with uh, District 12. Right. Totally. So for me, what it reminds me of is not so much Machiavelli, though I don't disagree with that, Matt. But it reminds me of, of um, Charles Taylor's uh, – Charles Tilly, excuse me. <laughs> Charles Taylor, very, very different theory. Um, you have me excited uh, there for a minute. Yeah, Sorry. Matt, you're you're like, like, oh, good. Tell me that. Wrong Chucky e. T. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of Charles Tilly's resource mobilization theory. And uh, Tilly uh, is giving us a theory of why revolts break out sometimes – why repression is sufficient to restrain revolts other times, and what are the key kind of key ingredients and processes by which revolt occurs? And he yeah. talks about uh, both the resources necessary to, and both in terms of human capital, but also in terms of the, the ability to spark revolution, as well as the interplay with those resources and repression. And I think the Hunger Games is actually a really nice illustration of why a populace can be kept suppressed for so long. And then under the right set of circumstances, which themselves look pretty idiosyncratic, it allows for a general revolt to break out. And I think that that actually tells sort of a compelling story. Yeah. And I think that that is, you know, maybe jumping to question three of what it gets right and wrong. I mean, 
you know, in one sense, it seems silly that, you know, Katniss and Peeta's act of rebellion of threatening to kind of essentially commit joint suicide at the end of, um, at the end of the first book, right, can send this world into such a tailspin. But it is those kind of events. I mean, like in Tunisia, in the, you know, not only did it launch a rebellion in Tunisia, it launched a rebellion in multiple countries in the Arab world. And it has to do with one, you know, vendor who's selling illegally, setting himself on fire. And people say, how did we get here? Right? How, how do we become the kind of place where somebody could be this desperate and could do that? And it launches it. And no one can predict that. I mean, how do you know that's gonna, that kind of thing's going to launch this? Um, at other moments, you probably quiet that, right? But at yeah. that moment, it, it just sparked a whole set, kind of set of revolutions. Um, and I think Hunger Games gets that right. That it's, is, is it weird? Yeah. But that's how reality is sometimes. So besides uh, accurately or sort of accurately portraying how revolutions can, can spark, are there other kinds of things the Hunger Games gets right? Because I think there's definitely some things that gets wrong. So let's, yeah. let's talk about what gets right first. Well, I think the thing you you highlighted, I mean, on the one hand, it's weird that they can hold control for seven plus decades, but you do that with these strategic partnerships. You give you know certain districts an incentive to kind of remain engaged um, in the process. Um, and you know, and that and that ends up being kind of motivating for them. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I don't have a lot of other things to add that they get right. Um, I have some things they I think they get wrong. Let's talk about that then. Um, I I'll throw my, my first thing out too. I think the, the economics of the Hunger Games sucks. Yep. Um, there's just <laughs> this is just not how large uh, national economic systems work. Uh, you for to accurate you know for the districts to sort of be specialized in these different things, whether it's mining or agriculture or technology yeah. or other sorts of you know fishing. Who who knows what all. Um, you right. still would need local people inside those districts to essentially provide secondary services to those primary industries. And if those things exist to any extent, it would really break down the uh, the capital's ability to play these districts off against each other. And so I think that's a significant flaw. It's on the sort of the political economy of the Hunger Games. Yeah. And I mean, it sort of um, follows sort of the mercantilist system, if you think. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, and in, in which you have you know this this sort of mother country or sort of the you know the center of the empire sort of siphoning off resources, raw goods even you know from sort of the outlying you know colonies, and that's how its wealth is actually uh, produced. Which it turned out that um, that sort of system wasn't all that great at producing uh, wealth and. Um, and providing sort of long-term sustenance for those colonies. Um, and, and the fact that this sort of system appears to be stable in the way it is and doesn't um, collapse or evolve into a more capitalistic system, I think probably reveals um, how it's somewhat unrealistic and hasn't been thought through carefully. Yeah, I think the other thing I would say, and I think that's right, the, it, it's a weird mercantilist system too, right? Because it's, yeah. it's not always clear like where everything's getting processed effectively because the capitalism do the process. I mean, like mercantilism was more like you'd, you'd bring the raw goods to the mother country and then you know they would do the industry, but the capital's not really doing industry. So <laughs> where does this happen, right? Um, that's not entirely clear. Um, and uh, I think... Yeah, I guess I guess the other thing I would just say, um, I, I don't know, I'm drawing a blank here. Actually, I was I had something else to add in that that my mercantilist comment drove it out of my mind. So <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to back to you, and maybe you'll come back to me in a minute here. I guess the other thing I would say that is, and this is a smaller point for me, but for an explanation of what's keeping the country together, what's keeping the center strong, 
Snow is kind of a terrible political leader. Um, he's not, he doesn't seem to really draw um, a huge populist sentiment. No. Uh, he's not, doesn't have sort of, a, think about Weber's classic senses of power. He's not particularly charismatic. Um, and they also doesn't describe any kind of base of, of sort of traditional power. He, like, he doesn't have sort of like a, you know, like a quasi-religious claim to the throne or something like that. So it's not clear to me why he's been able to hold on to power other than perhaps sheer Machiavellianism. More on that in a moment. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, the, the basic argument for keeping Penem together um, is, I mean, it's re reminiscent of Animal Farm. Um, and it's basically this threat of you don't want Jones to come back, right? That's what the pigs always say in Animal Farm is, you know, if you don't cooperate with us, Jones will come back. How terrible would that be? And so the, the argument of the capital seems to always be, if you don't let us do this, we will go back to this time of complete chaos, unrest. Um, we're the only ones who can kind of keep this under control, right? Um, and it just doesn't feel that compelling because again, they're, they're just not giving enough kind of advantages um, to the local people. And so, I mean, I think the thing I was gonna say a minute ago when I drew a blank was, I think the other thing that gets wrong is kind of back on that Machiavelli point, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, you do want people to fear you, but you don't want them to hate you and you don't want to continually rub their faces in it. There's a moment to make them fear and to remind them they should be afraid. Um, but the capital very deliberately is continually rubbing the kind of people's powerlessness in their faces, right? Like we're going to have the Hunger Games every year. And in between, in case you've forgotten in the, that 12 month period, we're going to have a tour of the victors and you're going to have to turn out and look at them and see the people who killed your children, right? Because of course, it's always a killer of your children, right? Or somebody who was at least involved in the games where your children were killed from that district. Um, you're continually rubbing their face in it and, and you really are stoking their hatred, right? And, yeah. and it's just not clear why you'd want to do that. It seems really excessive. Oh yeah, Machiavelli would would really take him to task uh, for his his approach. I think. So. Yeah, or in this case, hers with Suzanne Collins, right? Like well, her, yeah, yeah, yeah. Constructing this, although, right? Constructing although you know, half of the book it seems like a setup just to have this gladiatorial sort of contest, right? Oh, yeah. um, which is modeled after you know reality television, basically. But it's basically yeah. a deadly survivor, <laughs> survivor, right? Yeah. Like yeah, you basically. don't vote people off the island, you shoot them off the island. <laughs> yeah, right. Basically, yes. I do have to say, and this is uh, utter aside, and I hope you'll all forgive me for this, but I'm the only one of the four of us who even occasionally plays video games. I think, well, Sam, Sam will play a little bit of NBA 2K. I think, right? Um, but I'm I'm the one most familiar with games like Fortnite, and PUBG, and uh, um, Call of Duty, um, and those sorts of things, and I. Yeah, Sam's just shrinking his shoulders right now. But I will say that uh, whether it was a direct inspiration or not, there's a whole genre, probably the, the hottest genre of, of video games right now in the world are these games where essentially it's a arena-style combat game where there's a shrinking arena. And that is very basically the Hunger Games model. And the Hunger Games was written well before these games came out. So this, this yep. sort of modern iteration of sort of massive online arena combat games is really kind of based on the Hunger Games idea. Yep. All right, um, Andy, let's uh, let's give this a grade. I'm gonna, I, I know a little bit about the Hunger Games and I, it seems like Matt knows a little bit about the Hunger Games. So we're, we're gonna try to influence you, but you give us the overall grade first. It's a hard call. I mean, it does get some things wrong on with the Machiavelli side, and there's no explanation of how the institutions work. 
Um, on the other hand, I like that it gets a lot right with kind of the revolution um, and the way you make these kind of strategic partnerships. Um, if I was going to include the political economy part, I'd probably grade it lower, but I'm going to kind of set that to the side. It's probably B minus C plus for me in that okay. round. Matt, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I was about the same. It kind of depends on how much you want to weight the various elements of, of the grade, right? Um, if I was to include... Um, you know, the political economy and sort of the overall sort of system level sort of, of coherence, I would probably give it a lower grade, probably a C or a C sort of C plus. Um, um, and even once I think about it, um, I mean, my initial thought is like, oh, Snow was a very Machiavellian figure. But but as we sort of talk that through, I, I'm less convinced that he is a good Machiavellian figure, actually. Um, um, just because he doesn't have these, as you pointed out, Chris, these sort of um, typical sort of bases of, of power, whether it's charisma or tradition or religion, you know, populism, et cetera. So I, I'd give it, um, I'd probably give it a C plus overall. So, okay. I'm going to try and push you the other way. Um, if you're kind of between a B minus and a C plus and uh, Matt says you can give a C, uh, a C plus, I want you to think about a B minus or a B. And here's why I, I will grant everything you've just said. It doesn't talk about the institutions, but what it does do a really good job of is the process. And so I think I do uh -huh. like the way it talks about the process of revolution breaking out. I think I would actually consider offering some illustrations from Hunger Games if I was talking about Charles Tilley's resource mobilization theory. I think yeah. it really captures some of those things. And so that would be my recommendations. I think from those perspectives, I think we should grade it just a little bit higher. Yeah, I could be persuaded that it, it's a B. But... All right, let's get the awards out. All right. Uh, we've already alluded to this. Who gets the Machiavelli Award? Who's the shrewdest politician in the Hunger Games? You know, despite our critiques, I'm still going with Snow. Um, he does ultimately fail, but he's he's held power for a really long time. He's willing to do whatever it takes, including poisoning his enemies um, to maintain it, including poisoning himself to maintain it, for that matter, um, and, you know, and surviving. Um, he So he keeps a, a really kind of problematic system um, together for quite a long time. Um, and he's ultimately brought down by something that is, again, an unpredictable kind of random event. I mean, you know, like maybe, you know, you're putting so much pressure on it that those kind of events aren't surprising in the end. That one of them is going to ultimately light a fire. But um, it, you know, he does a lot. Um, well, and then at the end, at the very end, it's kind of interesting. Um, he really does get Katniss. Um, and um, a lot of the rebels in a deep way. Um, I mean, he understands her, right? In a way that, he, you know, the... The people she's aligning herself with don't, um, and mm. he ends up being kind of right about some things, um, even though you know he's a terribly oppressive figure. So I'm still going to go with him, even though despite his his flaws, which we've already noted. I have no objections to that pick. I'm fine <laughs> with I'm fine with Snow. Um, Andy, <coughs> excuse me. Let's talk about the Achebe Award. Now this is a weird one because. There is a revolution that happens in the midst of the yeah. Hunger Games. But if you had to sort of roll forward, um, instead of a prequel, if you had a sequel, maybe 100 years, maybe not even that far, let's say 50 years, after the events of the main trilogy, what would you expect to see? How does this world fall apart? Ooh, that's a, yeah, that's a harder question, actually, because it's not clear what kind of government system they have. It's vaguely democratic at the end of the, the Hunger Games. But... The you know the series kind of trails off on that point. I mean, it's just not very specific about what what happens. Um, but I think what you end up getting most likely is that you end up with some kind of inequality between the districts again. Somebody's frustrated enough and they rebel. Um, but there's just too much that's vague at the end to really say much more than that. 
Well, yeah, and because they haven't been practiced in democracy for such a long right. period of time, yep. the whole thing is just not sustainable. There's there's chaos. Um, yep. They're not used to sort of rule of law and everything falls apart. And lo and behold, they elect another snow, right? Or yep. another snow comes in um, and and you basically have a reboot, some sort of maybe a sort of softer despotism, perhaps. Um, yep. But but still, nonetheless, something that, um, you know, takes hold of the center again. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, spoiler alert here, right? But like, I mean, basically that's what Katniss encounters at the end, right? With kind of the last, you know, and really kind of the last clear political moment in some ways, right? I mean, is she realizes, oh, shoot, the yeah. leader I'm working with is basically Snow, snow 2.0, right? It's a different version of Snow. Um, I've been fighting with another Snow, and this Snow is maybe less honest with me um, than actually the original Snow, right? Um, which is why in some ways she's actually persuaded by him at the end. Um and then we have this sort of, oh, we, we got a, hopefully a good leader, and then we, we don't hear anymore. And then see, um, but yeah. it doesn't seem all, it doesn't seem likely that's going to be sustainable. And then I think Matt's right. Then somebody comes in and says, "Hey, there, isn't there a lot of chaos? Maybe we should get somebody who can bring order." And then you're at Snow 3.0, right? So, yeah, I'll, I'll just throw I'll throw one more <laughs> thing out there for my for the Achebe fans. Um, Going back to the late 1990s, uh, people like Ed Mansfield and, uh, and, and Snyder, uh, Richard Snyder and others have argued that uh, it's after the reformation of government, young governments are particularly warlike. And one of the reasons they're particularly yeah. warlike is because they're looking for ways to consolidate internally. So I would think that maybe a sequel to The Hunger Games would actually have us looking outside the districts. Um, are yeah. there other powers out in the world? Are there other sort of empires? And is there an external other that they can align against to bring the internal uh, districts together? Uh, that's yeah. something missing from the series, but I think it's probably something to be explored. All right. I think I know the answer to this, but again, I've only read uh, about half the material. So who is the Leslie Nope? Who is the political actor in this series that most inspires or is acts mostly on hope and uh, and positivity? I mean, this is a this is a dystopian series. Um, so I think at one level the answer is there is no Leslie Nope Award winner. We're not going to award this. If you push me further and try to make me award someone, um, I guess I go with Peta, despite his like lengthy period of. Um, you know, sort of mental disturbance, if you will, in, in book three. Uh, and and the fact that he's not very political at all. Um, mm -hmm. But he's probably the closest. He's a figurehead, right? He's, yeah. a, he's a positive figurehead. Yeah. Maybe not peculiarly yeah. political, um, but perhaps a little bit idealistic. Yes. Yep, I buy that. It's Peter for me, too. Matt, you had uh, three figures in the air there. Are you saying Katniss is your Leslie Nope? I don't know. I mean... I suppose, I mean, just because ultimately she was the one that kept the whole revolution moving forward um, and never gave up, never stopped fighting. But of course, that's not so. So, you know, perhaps if you're looking at the results, um, but, you know, as far as like pure sort of personality, yeah, PETA, PETA is probably the better choice. So, hey, so I'll buy that. So. If uh, the characters from Parks and Rec were forced to play the Hunger Games, uh. who would finalize? <laughs> Oh, like who wins? It's well, it's Ron Swanson. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I'll grant you, Ron's gonna win. But like, who does he have to kill at the end to win? Who oh, makes uh, it to the end? 
I think I think actually Leslie is the person who makes it to the end because she's also an unstoppable force. And actually, it would be a good movie and a, or a good book or a good show because ultimately, could she convince Ron not to kill her? Is what the what it would be? Uh, yeah. No, the answer is no. She couldn't do that. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, we got time for one more today, and this is a this is sort of a partial. Every once in a while, every once in a while, we have to give a student an incomplete because they had a, a medical condition uh, during the course of a semester, and so they had to finish up some work after the semester is concluded, and then we give them a grade after they finished uh, all the required work for the class. And um, we're in, we did that with Star Wars, and so we. Revisit, we visited Star Wars last after uh, The Last Jedi aired. And since that time, we've gotten two pretty important pieces of work from the Star Wars world. And, and by the way, I should say, there is a lot of Star Wars out there. Yeah. And I've consumed a fair amount of it, right? There are, um, there are six movies, in, or I'm sorry, nine movies in the Skywalker saga. There's also Rogue One. There is a Han Solo standalone movie. There is the uh, cartoon series um, uh, Star Wars Rebels. There's the Clone Wars, that, which is just finished coming out, actually. And then there's boy, there's, there's comic books and other things which aren't canon. Whew, there's a lot of Star Wars going on. We're focused for this review just on the Skywalker series. And last time we basically covered eight of nine movies. So we looked at the original trilogy, the three prequels, and then the two subsequent more recent movies, uh, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. But since that time, we've had The Rise of Skywalker come out. So we're just going to revisit these questions one more time and see if uh, – See if the rise of, or see the, if the rise of Skywalker has changed our valuations. First of all, before we actually get the politics of this, guys, um, what did you think overall of the rise of Skywalker? Where are you at with this movie? I want to see it once. Mixed feelings. Yeah, yeah I actually rewatched it um, the past couple of days uh, just in purpose because I'd only seen it once in theaters um, mm -hmm. and I tended to go back and that didn't happen. And then COVID, you know, ended life as we knew it. So, um, but we got Disney plus. So, um, so I decided nice. to watch it and, and I like it a little bit better. Can I also commend that Schoolhouse Rock is on Disney plus. So feel I know I saw that, that which is weird. Cause like you could find it on YouTube, mm. but like the most important part of it. Anyway, um, yeah, so a lot of mixed feelings. Um, there are certain, you know, the the acting, I mean, this is this is getting beyond what we're trying to do. I mean, the acting is very strong. Um, the, the character arcs are very interesting. Um, the politics um, and sort of the plot <laughs> as a whole. Yeah, the politics and the plot as a whole are, are a little thin. Um, okay. I, yep. I enjoyed the yep. movie, but found other aspects of it frustrating, personally. But. Okay. My, my frustration was they, they didn't connect that trilogy well at all. Um, I think the result of, um, of, of having a different director for the middle one, right? I mean, like, you just, you needed somebody to be, you know, be George Lucas, who is in charge of the story, right? So that at least whatever story you're telling, it's coherent. And they didn't do that. They let each director kind of take charge of the story. And so you get just a very weird shifts in the story that don't really make a ton of sense. I'll go further than that. I ended up liking these movies. I ended up liking all three of these movies. And I'll say that. But I feel like each one of them apologized for the previous films. Yep. Yep. I feel like The Force Awakens apologized for the prequels. 
I think Last Jedi apologized for Force Awakens, and I think clearly uh, Rise of Skywalker apologized for Last Jedi. And not, it might have apologized, straight up refuted it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there was one point in which, uh, like, the basically the only real scene that Luke Skywalker had in in Episode Nine, um, he's talking with Ray, and Ray is like, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna you know go to this island, and I'm gonna I'm gonna basically become a hermit just like you." And and he and he literally straight up and said, "That was a mistake. I was living in fear." Just threw the whole point of Episode Eight away. Um, <laughs> Which I thought that was a very interesting thing they did with episode eight. It was like we're just gonna toss this into the yep. to the garbage heap yep. or yeah. the garbage collector. Yeah, this, this I mean, he, he didn't. Luke didn't actually say Ryan Johnson was in my mind, but he might as well have. He might. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, here's what here's what I want out of this. What I what I wish could have happened, and I'm not a film critic. I'm just a, I'm just a consumer of this world, and I'm not a huge like I'm not a convention going Star Wars person. Mm-hmm. I don't like have Star Wars posters in my house or <laughs> like that. But I did like these films, and I wish that I had a three film J.J. Abrams arc. Get rid of the Ryan Johnson movie in the middle, and let J.J. Abrams do whatever yep. he wanted to do in that second movie. And then likewise, give Ryan Johnson a three movie arc to see what he can do with this too. I want both. Yep. I want yep. both things yep. and then not try to mix them up together. Yep. I, I agree with that. I think it's, um, you know, it's, you, you got to choose the line, right? Like, which one are you going to do? Either one of those could have been fine. Um, trying to make them both at the same time was not so good. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Disney. Yep. Well, well, and, and trust me, there's plenty of billions to be made if they just made more Star Wars movies. So, oh, yeah. but anyway. first, for what we have here, the, the, this this should this should conclude the Skywalker saga. Here's what we said last <laughs> time: we said that the original trilogy and uh, is basically a anti-imperialistic story, right? You've got the empire. It's literally the empire. And you've got this ragtag group of resistance forces striving against the empire, trying to take down the empire. And it's basically a fantasy about resistance and anti-imperialism, right? Now, what about this more recent trilogy? Now that it's concluded as incoherent as it is, does this, is this still basically an anti-imperialism story or a post-imperialism story? Yes. Um, I mean, Star Wars has always been, um, well, the original trilogy was always um, self-consciously about, you know, not just fighting an empire, but fighting an empire of space Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the, the, the imagery, the symbolism, even the the speech that's used is, is all there, right? Um, and that sort of, and, and we saw in the prequels, sort of the development, how we got to that point. Um, and the politics there... Um, I think are actually pretty interesting and pretty well portrayed. Um, and you see kind of a continuation of this fight against sort of the space Nazis um, in, and in, in, you know, the empire in the sequels, but I would posit perhaps that sort of the, maybe the nature of the empire um, or in this case, the first slash final order has shifted. Right. So, mm-hmm. and, and maybe Chris, you, you have some thoughts on this, but I mean, I was thinking, so in, in the, Obviously, sort of the Sith have always been behind the Empire, right? So this this pure sort of genocidal kind of evil. Um, but there was always sort of this underlying idea, and you saw this especially in Episode 3, um, when Chancellor Palpatine became Emperor Palpatine. This idea that the Empire is there and to basically provide sort of uh, 
sort of basic peace and order and security in a galaxy full of just lots of chaos and wars and worlds constantly clashing with each other. And you needed this ultra powerful empire to swoop in and basically put a stop to stop to these wars, which were partly fabricated, right? Um, but mm -hmm. you know, nonetheless, there was a history of conflict and this is something that the, the Republic dealt with. Um, and so the empire provided that. Now they used genocide to that end. Um, and of course, Palpatine, you know, being a Sith loves power for the sake of power, right? But there's always some sort of, you know, expressly sort of political purpose to it, right? Even if there was sort of uh, expressly evil purpose to it as well. But it seems like that desire for sort of peace and, and, and order even, under the, you know, a dominating empire that kind of evaporated. Um, the first order and the final order just seemed to be there purely to kill, right? We're, mm -hmm. and, and that, and part of this was, is a function of this desire, I think by perhaps the movie makers to constantly sort of escalate uh, the destruction, right? So we originally have, you know, a Death Star one and a Death Star two that are designed to kill just a few worlds in order to basically use fear to bring the rest into submission, right? Which is a very sort of classic political move. You knock out a few, a few, you know, communities in order to bring everyone else, get everyone else to fall in line. Well, now we're going to up the ante and we're going to have a star killer base, which kills a whole bunch of worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so we have that. Uh, and then, you know, at the end, finally, we have a whole fleet of star destroyers that can go kill everybody, right? Um, kill all of the worlds. Um, I have many as, thoughts about this. Hold on. Yeah, <laughs> kill all the worlds. Instead of bringing in this submission, we're just basically going to destroy um, the entire free galaxy, which, of course, is politically asinine, right? Because, you know, those are people, those are resources um, that the empire could use. Um, so that's just, so the politics, the politics are all wrong. And in the nature of the empire, or, you know, the empire's replacement, you know, the first order, the final order, uh, the nature of that actually shifts in a pretty important way, I think, in in the sequels. So yeah. those are my initial thoughts. I've been yeah, thinking about those a lot. So. Two quick things on that. I mean, one is, um, I think that's right. I mean, I think it highlights the fact that maybe this vast universe is not governable except by overwhelming force, right? I think it, and so that, that leads like any hopeful conclusion about getting rid of, you know, the first order of the empire, whoever else might be just sort of diluted. Right. I mean, because it, it, maybe they can never be governed except by this kind of use of force. And the second thing I would say is like, I agree that it is kind of asinine and crazy uh, how they've, they've structured it. On the other hand, maybe not as crazy as we think when you look at the real world, when you think about mad, right. Mutually assured destruction, which we had yeah. during the Cold war where it's like, what we're going to do is we're going to build up nuclear stockpiles where we could completely wipe out, our opponent and indeed the world, right? If they dare to touch us. Um, the difference here is you only have one. <laughs> one There's no mutual. Bad, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which makes it even matter. So that's what's crazy. Unilateral you know, assured destruction, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. All right. So I agree with Matt. I think the politics takes a significant hit in these yeah. three movies yeah. uh, to the point of being utterly incoherent. But, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out my Deo Ex Machina. I'm going to try and save it from an outside force, okay. an outside magical force. And you know what that outside force is, guys? Ray. Little baby Yoda. Oh. You know what okay. saves this world is the Mandalorian. And so if you I haven't look watched at the Mandalor Mandalorian, which, which doesn't really – it only kind of talks about politics in the background. But what it really portrays is what happens after the Empire breaks apart. Exactly. And you see a couple different vignettes of the emergence of essentially warlordism 
at alternative power structures, the remnants of empire sort of clinging on in sort of pockets of habitability, trying to bring back the old order. And at the same time, you see sort of people carving out uh, essentially economies in the wake of the of a crumbling empire. And I think that that really tells a story that is missing from the Skywalker trilogy, but is occurring in between uh, the the Return of the Jedi and um, and the Force Awakens mm-hmm. is this sort of this question of what happens in the wake of Empire, and it doesn't really tell us where the First Order came from, but you can sort of begin to build the the understanding that of what happens in the, where the First Order comes from. Right, there are these huge portions of the Imperial Army that are left in the wake of. Uh, the emperor's initial demise via Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, and they reconstitute themselves. And that's essentially what the first order is. Now, I don't think that means they get everything right, but I do think this, what this tells us is, is um, a twofold story about this, about legitimacy as a form of power. And I'll tell you that what I mean by this, on the one hand, you have the first order, which is essentially some sort of breakaway, but, uh, um, armadas of the uh, of the imperial uh, navy who are trying to reconstitute themselves as the empire they're seeking legitimacy uh snoke is seeking legitimacy as an entity um but, but they're using sort of the sith as a sort of a basis for their legitimacy as well but the rebels the or, or now the republic is also seeking legitimacy right um they're seeking legitimacy in, in the searching for luke skywalker what is luke skywalker um, other than uh hearkening back into sort of the um, the original rebellion and sort of this sort of classic uh, founding father, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson type of figure for this fledgling Republic. They need to find Luke Skywalker for legitimacy. So both sides of this conflict, I think are searching for legitimacy. I think that's a political uh, concept that I think that, that these do get right. On the other hand, uh, oh, one other thing I think they get right. We, we visited this last time, but um, the right, uh, the last Jedi um, really gets right this sort of idea of the military-industrial complex. As much as I uh, dislike the casino scenes in the middle of The Last Jedi, the fact that there's the essentially this, this profiteer class getting rich off of selling weapons to both sides of this conflict, um, sort of amorally, is, uh, I think, something that the, the films do get right. And you see just a hint of that in, uh, um, uh, in the, um, the Rise of Skywalker as well. So I guess I'll say that. I think it does get those things right. If I take the Mandalorian into account, I think the idea of rebuilding the state, or in this case, rebuilding the galaxy, is hard, I guess. Um, but there's more that it gets wrong. At least that's my take. Mm. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would put the Mandalorian and the sequels in completely different categories. These are two separate uh, students that deserve different grades. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, is, yeah. is how I would think of it. And I mean, and, and they were produced, you know, I mean, there's some, some crossover, right? There's Catholic Kennedy was involved in both, mm-hmm. but, but, um, but they were produced by different groups of people. Right. Um, True. And so, True. Um, yeah, I, I agree. The Mandalorian um, is very much about, you know, what, what happens when you have an empire collapse? There's a new form of government uh, that's trying to consolidate 
um, and trying to seek legitimacy. But, you know, you have all these, you know, remnants scattered around of, of the old system that, you know, haven't dis disappeared just because, you know, their main weapon got taken out, right? <laughs> the Death Star. So right. yeah, I, I, I totally, totally agree with that. And I think, you know, part of the reason why, I mean, even the, the better parts of the sequels fail is because you have this sort of explanation that's inserted into episode nine that says, well, Palpatine was pulling the strings of the first order the whole time, right? Um, as opposed to this first order sort of kind of developing organically in a way that you described, Chris, um, mm -hmm. instead of you know, describing how that works and portraying how it works in a movie, they basically you know, start you in with ep in episode seven with the first order now exists with no explanation and they actually have to use a series of books that they have to publish to explain <laughs> where it came from right uh -huh. no explanation until basically the very end of this trilogy uh in which palpatine makes this sort of appearance and he's and basically there's this discovery he's pulling the string so it's sort of the opposite of a, a deus ex machina it's not you know it's not god in the machine it's devil in the machine right it's mm -hmm. diablos ex machina he's sort of yeah. inserted in to provide this explanation um which really just takes whatever sort of good political dimension there was in the sequels and just crushes it so can i can yeah, i give a, does not make sense uh, bringing him back can i give a palpatine rant here Please. Yes, please. Um, Palpatine is 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 the devil. I will, I'll grant that. He is. He's yes. also an absolutely terrible politician, um, and uh, we give him way too much credit. Through nine movies, this guy has been terrible at politics. He is. Were it not for the fact that he literally is a space wizard, this guy is terrible <laughs> at politics. First of all, he, he, fa he fakes his own death. We're not sure how he survives. He's a clone. Uh, uh, the second, books okay. describe that he's actually a clone in episode nine. Oh, okay. So he's just he's just a reboot. Okay. Just to so yes. Well, so he, well, so he, wait, he's a clone, but he's back in like this decrepit form. Like it doesn't make sense. Like yeah. So he's well, a the, bad, the he's a fact bad he was a clone was described in a book that came out later because the movie didn't really explain what actually happened. But yeah, but, like, he's so, a clone, okay. I digress. He, he shouldn't be like this decrepit. I don't know. It's just really strange. So oh, he's, right. thrown, he's thrown into a shaft of lightning at the end yep. of Return of the Jedi. He shows back up on the a lightning-filled planet of Exegol, right, with yeah. a giant fleet of of planet-killing star destroyers. Yes. But I have to ask, where did this guy get the cash to build a giant <laughs> fleet of star destroyers? And why, oh, if you God. had the cash to build a giant fleet of star destroyers, would you use it to build a giant fleet of star destroyers unless you were, in <laughs> fact, the devil? And, wait, 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 I have more. Why would you park this fleet of star destroyers on a planet that you could not move them off of very easily without them blowing up. And then why would that same planet be in a place where you could not get them out of the space around that planet without having an extremely convoluted space travel system where you probably lose ships. This is absolutely terrible military strategy. Why would you take your overwhelming military superior force and put it all up, uh, together? It's like, it's like if the United States took all of our aircraft platforms and parked them back to back to back. Like just yeah. right around Hawaii. Wait, oh wait, yeah. Wait. Oh dear. Oh wait. wait. Um, so furthermore, his, his not only is his defensive strategy terrible, his offensive strategy is terrible too. Why would you blow up the planet 
he blow, he blows a coruscant, right? Why would you blow up the planet that the the um, is literally the core planet for the republic? This is terrible politics. If Andy's right, and this is unilateral assured destruction or something like that, <laughs> and you're trying to get the uh, the rest of the world sort of you know bow before your might. Why blow up the most expensive, most influential planet? Pick someplace that doesn't matter as much. Blow them up first. This is why gangsters shoot people in the kneecaps rather than the head. This is <laughs> yeah. terrible politics. Yeah. Yep. Well, he did that with Alderaan too, right? So yeah, yeah, a very yeah. influential, is, wealthy planet, right? So, yep. so all I'm saying is the emperor um, might be malevolent and might be sort of terrifying at a personal level. He's a terrible strategist, right? Um, he should have <laughs> lost this conflict. <laughs> well, he's terrible in the sequels, but not as terrible in the prequels, right? There's a lot of interesting. It's, I mean, you already discussed this, and so we don't have mm -hmm. to digress into it, uh, but. The political maneuverings, at least, are a little bit more interesting and plausible. In, in he gets the dumbest guy on the planet named Jar Jar Binks to <laughs> nominate him for unlimited power. Like I don't, yeah. I, I, I just don't think that, that 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 takes that many moves to make that happen. Well, yeah. <laughs> and he outmaneuvers a teenage queen. There's that. Well, there is that. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I agree. Thanks for me getting off my chest, guys. He does <laughs> seem overrated. <laughs> okay, so. Based surely on the actions of the emperor alone, I have to downgrade the politics of um, in in Rise of Skywalker. But what and, grade should and, we give the politics? Well, and can I world? pile on just a little bit? Yeah, more yeah here? please, please, because okay, because I'm in a mood. Um, yeah, so yeah. let's talk right. about let's talk about um, collective action for a minute. Right? Yeah, okay. We like to we like to talk about this in politics. So, yeah. so you recall in Episode Eight. Um, you have all of you know what's left of the ragtag rebel force, who, which has been sort of reduced, and they're all sitting on you know you know Salt Planet, whatever the name is. Um, uh, crate, and they I believe. Say what? Crate, I believe. Oh, yeah. crate. Yeah. They're on crate, and they sent out this distress call asking for people to come, you know, assist them. Right? Nobody shows up. Nobody yeah. even replies. No one checks their voicemail to to see you know what what's going yep. on. And then yeah. in episode <laughs> new number, episode who nine, you know where this is going. Um, Lando Calrissian, who comes out of nowhere, how he you know whatever yeah. comes out of nowhere, basically flies off in a little ship and manages to rally the entire free world, well from mm -hmm. slash free galaxy, to mm -hmm. all show up mm -hmm. in force to take mm -hmm. out. The final order mm -hmm. and that, and also how they navigated through that weird sort of nebula thing that you know all at the same time is also i mean that's another plot uh, hole for another yeah. day but uh -huh. but you know like what there's no explanation for why the collective action right. you know utterly failed at one moment um but within a relatively short period of time probably less than a year all of that completely shifted um and there's yeah. no explanation for that and i find that deeply troubling to say i have i have an i have an explanation Let's hear it, Chris. Do you know who the winner of my Machiavelli Award is? It's Lando Calrissian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you want you of course you want to say it's Ray, or you want to say it's Leia, right? I mean, th that that's that's what the series wants you to think of as the true sort of political leaders. No, it's Lando. Has Lando ever been on the losing side? I submit to you, Lando is always on the winning side. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Lando is the Machiavelli. I don't yeah. know what he did. I don't know what episode happened. five. <laughs> It's yep, it's off screen, but somehow Lando figures out, oh, the Emperor parked all of his star killing ships on one planet and we can blow them all up right now. 
Let's do it, guys. And he got everybody to go do it. He's the Machiavelli. He is the yeah. Machiavelli. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the only explanation that makes much sense out of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. So that's my Machiavelli award. Um, do you guys want to make a case for anybody else? Nope. I'm good no. with that. Okay. Nobody else even gets close to deserving it. So let's 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 do a Chebe. Um now, this is the end of the Skywalker saga. There will be more Star Wars movies. We don't know if they're going to jump way forward in time. They might jump way back in time. I'm actually kind of intrigued by that. But if we were just going to have episode 10, what happens? What's the world look like? It's weird, right? Because Coruscant's gone. Um, so <laughs> so there goes all your sort of, you know, your, your political right. censure, right? And... <laughs> Now we—that's the thing. There's still all these remnants of the empire floating around. Have they mm -hmm. just given up? Yep. Right. So you have—you know—are we going to have the return of the second order or whatever <laughs> you want to call it now? Um, so there's that the problem. order. Yeah. yeah and, you know. I mean, and it's weird too because I mean, sort of the final order was sort of imposed from the outside, and it, it, it crashed and burned literally mm -hmm. on screen before it even yep. got off the ground. Right. Um, so, but what you have now is you still have all the remnants of the final order, which is—I you know, mean—it's almost all of it. Um, but now there's no new Republic around to provide a counterweight to that, right? Because, because the most important planets such as Coruscant got all taken out. So it yeah. wouldn't surprise me if the first order, you know, came back in and sort of took over, um, or, or else, um, if they weren't successful, that basically the universe sort of, you know, devolves into sort of this, you know, every planet for itself sort of, um, system in which there's, you know, warlords and mercenaries and, um, and this sort of, you know, um, general sort of galactic anarchy, yeah. which every, you know, system is on its own. Um, and maybe forming, you know, little sort of, you know, conclaves or confederations um, amongst each other, you know, to to survive and, and pool resources and trade. So that's just a guess. So. Well, I think, I think, so Star Wars to me seems to repeatedly fall into the same problem as Marx, right? And Marx's <laughs> problem is, uh, it's core, right? Uh, Mark says, look, you have these systems that are press and they keep reappearing in different forms. But, you know, if people will just band together, love freedom enough, love their, you know, equality enough, then we can overthrow that and it can be a beautiful new world. Right. And of course, <laughs> what what, you know, attempts to do this in the real world have shown is. Nope, not really. Right. What you do get is somebody else who says, Oh, good. Thank you. There's a power vacuum. I will happily step into this and create new forms of oppression and use those that, to then achieve my ends. Right. Um, and that's what seems to happen in Star Wars. Right. Like, Oh, let's, let's blow these bad guys up and then we will step in and we'll have freedom. It's like, Nope. They'll, you know, some of them will be left. They'll come back in some new form and they'll reassert that power. And if they don't, somebody else will still step into that power vacuum and do it. Um, instead, um, you have to have some kind of structure, right, to maintain freedom. And Star Wars never seems to, to indicate even in a little bit what that structure would look like, other than the original Republic, which failed because this universe is too vast and um, it can't get the job done. It can't govern effectively, which is where yeah. we are in episode one, right? Yeah, and this is where I would um, insert a plug for go read um, what is now part of sort of the Star Wars legacy. It's not canon anymore. Go read the <laughs> Thrawn trilogy. Have any of you read the Thrawn trilogy? No, we need we need Mitchell Crumb here for that one. Yeah, yeah, um, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. Basically, um, the Thrawn trilogy um, basically picks up where um, the 
the Return of the Jedi leaves off, right? Um, so this is mm -hmm. before the the sequels, episodes seven, eight, nine came out, um, and Timothy. Um, Timothy Zahn, who is the author of the Thrawn trilogy, basically lays out, okay, the New Republic is trying to get on its feet, is trying to establish itself. What does it look like to actually engage in diplomacy where literally we, we send out ambassadors um, to all of these different worlds to try to get them to mm -hmm. join the New Republic, right? Because they're formerly part of the Empire. The Empire right. just didn't disappear whenever we blew up the second Death Star. It's still out there. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to peel off these worlds away from right. the empire's political system into the new republic. Um, and basically showing the the very sort of messy political process by which that happens. I mean, I, I think that is a, if, if you want to look at how the Star Wars universe could have played out post episode six, that is absolutely the place that you should turn. I, I think right. the Thrawn trilogy is excellent. Thrawn yeah. incidentally is the best villain in in Star Wars, by the way. I'll just Ooh. say that much. Ooh. So, All right. Yeah. yeah. But so no, I would admit, he would I, win the Machiavellian award. So I think you're I think Andy's right. I think his critique of Marx is is on here as well. Um the good news I have the good news is you've you've eliminated the Sith and the Jedi are functionally defunct. So you, you've taken away the um sectarian angle of this conflict, mm -hmm. right? You no longer have the devil behind the empire, sort of, you know, uh for, for better or for worse. But what you still have out there is the trade federation you've got the tech guild you've got all of these other in place systems of power in the galaxy and they're going to move into this power vacuum and so i would expect some kind of corporatist yeah. warlordism uh yeah. really sort of you know uh replacing the empire i think you get order relatively quickly but it would be order um, on the back of essentially uh, a political economy yep. all right I don't have a good answer for this. I'm hoping you guys will. Uh, we had a very clear Leslie Nope for the uh, for the uh, Last Jedi. It was Rose Rose Tico. Do, is there a Leslie Nope in Rise of Skywalker? Hmm. I don't know. That doesn't sound inspiring. <laughs> I only saw it once, so I just I yeah I can't think of an obvious answer here. Well, I mean, if, maybe if, Lando actually, he might win both awards. He's very, he, he's he's certainly happy to always be on the winning side. I think it <laughs> it it might be Poe Dameron. You know, he he is the happy warrior. Yeah, maybe throughout all of this. Yeah, um, maybe he's sort of unburdened by by the defeat or victory. I just um, I don't <laughs> know, but 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 I mean, there's that there's that scene that once he is burdened with with command, he's literally promoted to general. Cause remember he was demoted earlier yep. uh, mm -hmm. in, this, in this trilogy. Once he was given the responsibility um, and once Leia passed away, you know, there's that scene with him, you know, basically sitting, you know, in front of her, you know, corpse, literally just sort of crying out. I don't know what you would do in, in this sort of profound sense of loss. Um, he was always optimistic in front of the troops, so to speak, um, except at the, at the very, very end, but, he, he really struggled. So, but maybe yeah. he's, he's, if we had to give the award, maybe, maybe he's a good candidate for that. So. Mm -hmm. There's one other option. One of my favorite new theories is just that someone reminded me that the, that the character who appear, there's several characters who appear in all nine Skywalker saga movies. Um, and R2D2 is one of them. And from Lucas's <laughs> perspective, Lucas had always kind of intended for R2D2 to be the storyteller. He's sort of the in uh, in story narrator of the Skywalker saga. 
And I like the idea that R2-D2 is embellishing the story to make himself look more important. Um, <laughs> that he's sort of adding little uh, little flourishes to, to, to promote his own importance to the story. And so I'd like to think that hidden inside of R2-D2's boops and bleeps is a little Leslie Nope. Um, just sort of uh, optimistically... Um, just kind of chugging along, uh, kind of keeping the story going, showing the power of the agent in the midst of the grand structure and its importance in the in the story itself. I don't know. That's that's well. That's, I, there's that's the line in the movie: "You never underestimate a droid," right? So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right, guys. At the end of the day, right, do you want to give this a grade? Mm. Yeah, we have to resolve this incomplete, so we got to give a grade overall. Politics in the Star Wars world, Skywalker F. saga. F, yeah, yeah Andy? for the uh, for the updated part, yeah, I think just because of the incoherence, yeah, um, I, and then I, I would it, give them, I would give the Mandalorian maybe a B, um, not better than a B because there's a lot that's not explained, um, but what is portrayed makes sense and it inhabits a very recognizable world in which there are recognizable political phenomenon. So, yeah, for, if, if we're talking about just uh, the rise of Skywalker, I got to give it an F too. If we're looking at the overall um, Skywalker saga, mm -hmm. I think we could go as high as a C plus, maybe even a B minus. If we're folding in all the yeah. anti-imperialist kind of you know lessons and those sorts yeah. of things, yeah. if we're looking at the Mandalorian, Mandalorian, give me an incomplete. We've got more uh, Mandalorian coming out, man. We got to see where this thing goes. I think it could get real cool. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting too if they try to with the Mandalorian bring in any of the sort of past history of the Mandalorians, right? Which are mm -hmm. is very interesting politically, actually. Um, so we'll see what happens. Space, space Spartans, yeah, be pretty cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, guys, we've got to get out of here. This has been super yep. fun. Um, you can always we'll, we'll be back in your podcast feed in the near future. Uh, we're going by every other week or so uh, through the summer with election shock therapy. Our next uh, podcast will probably dip out of the realm of fictional worlds back into our world, which is increasingly like fiction. Uh, and we'll stranger talk about what's stranger than fiction. We'll talk about what's happening in the real world in a couple of weeks. Uh, until we're back in your podcast feed, you can always get in touch with us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com, or you can email the podcast network at channel3900 at gmail.com. Make sure to like and subscribe uh, what uh, you're listening to so that you can get all the podcasts coming along this feed. Thanks for listening. Until you hear us again, go Royals.